You are listening to It's Midnight Somewhere with DJs Mistress McCutcheon and The Wasteland. It's midnight somewhere. It's midnight. This is DJ Mistress McCutcheon. Uh, Here I am in Toronto as we continue on with this strange new life that we live. I am accompanied by The Wasteland, who's on the other side of Toronto. Kind of on the other side. You live like center. I live west. That's all. That's true. It's a big town. That's true. It is. It is. And you know what? We're, I, I really enjoy working with The Wasteland. We DJ together and we do this podcast together. And as DJs, we work well in offsetting each other as far as what styles we prefer and, and the styles that we spin. While I'm on the goth side, Jay, a.k.a. The Wasteland, represents the industrial side. And while we do different things, we do have some overlap And one of the amazing things about talking about music is that one person doesn't know everything. You get to compare notes and share music and learn all the various pieces from different people that you talk to. And where we have overlap is really funny because it'll be like, oh, I really like that. Oh, well, I really like this too. And it's just, it's it's that magical moment when you find a tune that just hits you straight out of the gate. And there've been a couple bands that have been like that for us, but the, what we're gonna be talking about today is definitely a subculture touchstone that has overlap with both of us. And we're talking about the band known as Ministry. Yeah, I, they have had a very long, varied, storied, oft-talked-about career um, with many members over the years. And I think almost everybody we know has a period of ministry they enjoy. And people we don't know are still fans of what they make. So The entity known as Ministry began in 1981 in Chicago, coming from the musician, producer Al Jorgensen, who was actually born in Havana, Cuba, and is an American musician. He's closely been tied to wax tracks from the very start and has had a music career spanning about four decades, not just within ministry, but bands like A Thousand Homo DJs, Acid Horse, Lard. PTP, Revolting Cox, and a much newer project known as Surgical Meth Machine. Uh, He also toured with many uh, seminal artists from from our scene that have crossed multiple bands themselves. Uh, Ogre. Uh, Bill Riflin, Jim Ward, he was in Pigface for a bit, because uh, everybody was at a time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's true, they were the super uh, group. Yeah, they were. So, I mean, everybody was in Pigface at some point or another. So, I mean, they, they at what point, were very much a focal point and part of the solar system, if you would, of what industrial was in the late 80s and early 90s. Yeah, so there's just been so many eras and through this evolution of ministry, uh, Al Jorgensen is pointed at as the pioneer of industrial metal. Uh, I highly recommend Al Jorgensen's bio called Ministry, the Lost Gospels, according to Al Jorgensen. It was released in 2013. It's a really good read. It delves into all sorts of crazy shenanigans and the story of his addiction and survival Definitely pick it up. You can totally find it at the library because fuck Amazon, seriously. Well, additionally, there were the there were the biographies. There was the movie bi- documentary called Fix This, mostly funded by Paul Barker uh, back when they were at odds uh, that Al didn't want released. Uh, it shows a lot of backstage stuff from the Filth Pig tour and another one that deals with Al in a pretty not always... I would say complimentary light is the autobiography from Chris Connolly, Concrete Bulletproof, Invisible and Fried, My Life is a Revolting Cock. So you get a lot of different takes on who he was um, from different people, including himself that way, because he's kind of a complex individual as a person. And I don't think any one of those is wholly correct, but all of them will paint the picture of who the person is. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
So how I got turned on to ministry, what my entry point was uh, begins somewhere in my teenage years, because I know around 15 years old, I was introduced to Neubauten and Skinny Puppy. And it was it was a totally different time because we didn't have the Internet to lean on. So finding music became this whole other experience because you would find things through friends, uh, peddling through record stores, learning through zines. And another major resource for me was 120 Minutes on MTV, which was those Sunday nights around midnight, uh, learning what was new in alternative music or what was called alternative music at that time. Because also around that period, albums in regular rotation for me included uh, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult's Confession of a Knife, which came out in 1990, and Front 242's 1991 album Tyranny for You. So the first song that introduced me to ministry was Stigmata, which Stigmata is on The Land of Rape and Honey, which was originally released in 1988 and was out of print for quite a while until there was a reissue in 2007. That song really bowled me over because just the very start of it with the little how it comes in quietly and then blasts you. And I loved it. And that got me hooked into ministry at that point as a, as a younger person. The year after that, A Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste came out and was also very much in heavy rotation for me. So I'd like to drop in Stigmata right here.
so my first ministry song was, if you recall, in the 90s, you would get a CD with a magazine. Um, Kerrang! did this a lot. Now, I don't know if it was a Kerrang! issue because, quite frankly, my friend or I, I think we were like 12, 13 or 14, uh, maybe a little older. Uh, I don't even, I never even saw the magazine issue. He uh, went into his brother's room because, or for something, and he, and he saw this disc, and his brother was like, hey, you might want it. And he grabbed it, and there was two songs on it we liked. And the first one was the live version of Breathe that was cut out for, from In Case You Didn't Feel Like Showing Up Live. And if you've seen the live video, you know that this is how they kicked off that whole tour. Um, they had both their drummers, uh, Bill Reiflin, and I think it was Jim Ward was the other drummer and they're both just hammering away at, at, at this opening for like two minutes with this big drum solo. And these are two great drummers just going to town, you know, and we would sit there on his front stoop. Cause that's probably one of the most New York things you do is sit on somebody's front stoop at a radio and just hang out. Uh, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and, and the first time we heard this, we were like, what is that? And then, you know, because of the drums and all that, we had been listening to his album. It was just kind of on. We we're like, this sucks. This sucks. This sucks. I don't even remember. I only remember two tracks from the whole album. And one, the, the first one was Ministry and the other one was from another band that is a completely different genre of music that we're not going to get into. But those are the only two that I liked on the whole CD. And I still follow both bands. And... <laughs> Uh, but it was just this powerful drumming, and then all of a sudden the guitars drop in. So my first ministry album that I picked up was actually, in case you didn't feel like showing up live, not realizing this song was cut out, and I picked it up at a place called Mr. Cheapo for like maybe $2.50, $4, something wow. like that. It was only a six-track EP, so they, they looked at it, and they were like, we can't price this as a full album. So they put it out cheap, and I got it real cheap. And that was my first ministry album, the live album, which kind of which has Stigmata on it and has a lot of their classic songs. And then the first full album I pick up is Psalm 69, and because I was uh, young enough that I didn't know what I was doing. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, so I'd like to drop in the live version of Breathe uh, because I have, in case you didn't feel like showing up live, I still have the VHS tape right over here. It is fantastic. It is available on YouTube, and we're going to throw that in on the show links because I tracked it down for this. Because if you want to get an idea of what the chaos was of ministry at that time, uh, it's worth watching. So let's kick it off with what the first track would have been if they didn't cut it from the album for money's sake.
Okay, so after hearing the live version, what was the first time you saw ministry? I've actually only seen ministry once, but I saw them in 1991 because that's when Psalm 69 was released. And I remember it was it was such a big shift in the sound of ministry because the first single off of Psalm 69 was Jesus Built My Hot Rod with the vocals by Gibby Haynes, who's the singer from Butthole Surfers. And this is where I was losing interest in ministry because they were starting to take a more metal approach. And that was not my thing. But 1991 is an important year to note because that's when Lollapalooza was a thing. And I ended up seeing ministry at Lollapalooza. But that is actually the only time I've seen them. And I mean, it was a great show. It was, it was everything that I, I was anticipating. It's just a really funny thing because I'd been really into that heavy industrial side. And I was used to seeing uh, thieves in regular rotation on 120 minutes because, again, oh, this was when this album was new. So, of course, they're promoting the crap out of it. And the only time I saw something that was other than Thieves on 120 Minutes, the video that came on was for Revenge, which was a total shock because it was a completely different genre altogether. And, you know, you get the credits of here's the name of the song and its ministry and it's off of this album with Sympathy. So I spent some time traveling back to investigate with Sympathy and it's totally a synth pop album. Which I, that totally vibed with me and was, was, I was on board with that because that's, again, where my tastes tend to lie. I don't like metal, so all of a sudden they're going in this direction and I went, but I like the older stuff that Ministry was doing. And even better yet, when you investigate pre with Sympathy Tracks, there's a song that I really enjoy, which was intended to be released as a single in 1982. You can find the video for it on YouTube, and this one's called Same Old Madness.
So when did you get a chance to see Ministry live? So the first time I saw them live was on the Filth Pig tour, which is an massively underrated album, in my opinion. I could understand not liking it if you're not into metal, but the songs are really well crafted. It's a lot slower than Psalm 69 was. And a lot of people were against that. Like the metal kids were against that. And the industrial kids were like, yeah, but it's still just slow, dirgy metal. It's it's almost doom metal in a way, in, if you really want to think of it that way. But it's, it's kind of also not. But the first time I saw them was at Roseland, which uh, Roseland was had a history of of being a rough place. It was a rough place <laughs> to see a show. There were people who would go to see shows just to just to get into pits. And uh, I saw ministry there, and I remember lining up before the show, and there was a row of about eight or nine ambulances. And one of my friends asked the security guard why there were so many ambulances here, and they said, you know, the last time these guys played here on the last album, they. they we had 16 ambulances pull out for various reasons, everything from, you know, broken bones and noses and ha- arms and legs to concussions of all types um, within the first two to three songs. So we were like, oh, this is this is going to be an experience. Um, and it was. It was quite the experience because Ministry Live, especially in that time period, they are a f- they were a force and they were opening... I can't remember exactly, but I know I saw them twice at Roseland, once with Fetus, once with the Young Gods. So, so I I don't I I don't recall which one opened that particular show, but I do know that because of Ministry, I got to see Fetus and the Young Gods. So the you know those are two bands that a lot that had a lot of clout. Now I got interested into them because of ministry and seeing them live. This is why I'm always a proponent of going to see opening acts. Yeah, I didn't know who they were. You know, it was 96. I was still in high school, barely. And it was it was a thing. But uh, I remember there were two things that stand out to me about this show. The first one, to go back to your stigmata story, was uh, being in, a, in the pit. Because when you're in Roseland, you're either in the pit or you're downstairs. There's nowhere else to go. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and Stigmata was on, and a bunch of people were dancing, a couple of people were moshing. And at one of the points where Al yells Stigmata at the beginning, this large, hairy, bald dude in just coveralls, no shirt. Now, the coveralls were done up, thank God, because he ran over to me and grabbed me by the shoulders. And I'm not, I'm not a small person. Um, I wasn't a small person in high school either. I was still, you know, when I graduated high school, I was I was almost 200 pounds, like 185, 190 pounds. And this motherfucker grabbed me by the sides, yelled stigmata and tossed me on top of the crowd. <laughs> Just bodily threw my ass onto the crowd or at the side, and and they lifted me up. I'm not quite sure. Next thing I knew, I was crowd surfing, and I was like, I guess I'm going to the front. Uh, after I got out of that situation, I, I went to the back, and uh, Stigmata winds down, and I'm just trying to get some air near the back because that was an experience. You know, as a bigger person, it's harder to go crowd surfing a lot, but that was a thing in the 90s. I was able to pull it off once in a while, but that was probably one of the last times. Right. Anyway, I go to the back, you know, I I get a cup of water or whatever, and then I remember the lights go out and they start playing a track called The Fall, which has a very kind of like the drums come in open and there's a bunch of samples running and then you know this guitar wall hits and it was perfectly black with a couple of like strobe flashes here and there with the samples and then as the guitar hits these just deep purple lights come up and just bathe the whole place in purple lights and for the first time i'd ever seen roseland just standing still watching the stage and I had never seen that. I mean, I know a dude who got his nose broken seeing Blues Traveler at Roseland. That's uh, bizarre to me because you and I definitely went to some very different shows. I've never yes. experienced that sort of thing at Roseland when it still existed. I could tell you some stories, but <laughs> I digress. <laughs> that's that's a different time. That is me and you over beers one night. But uh, 
Yeah, for the first time, I just saw the the crowd stand there and stand still and just watch. And now the interesting thing about The Fall is that drum line was written when Ogre, before it was called Ogre, it was called Welt, which might sound confusing because Welt was the first name of their first album for Ogre. But the band was originally called Welt because it was a side project of Skinny Puppy. So I guess he didn't want to name it after himself. Mm-hmm. And he was working with Al Jurgensen on it. And Al Jurgensen is also a drummer as well as a guitarist. So he apparently laid down these drum tracks for a song called Noreen, which appears on the album Welt. Um, I've listened to it since, since finding this out. And the drum beats are still fairly similar. Um, so I think he just lifted that because it wasn't doing anything. Uh, Skinny Puppy in 96 had already, Dwayne had just passed away. They had pretty much broken up. So he just repurposed those tracks because they weren't anywhere to be found in the musical landscape for a bit there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so let's, let's play that. Let it speak for itself.
So at what point for you and what was the main driver in you breaking up with ministry? Uh, you, you mentioned Psalm 69 and the metal thing, but like, was there a specific uh, like moment you remember this isn't for me anymore? Yeah, I the metal really turned me off because that's, it doesn't appeal to me. But also what causes ministry to really kind of not be on my radar anymore or to kind of have that breakup with with ministry is the discussion that we had in a previous episode regarding problematic artists. It makes me really hesitate to play stuff as a as a DJ because there's lots of older tracks that I really enjoy and want to be able to plug in here and there and oh and I I'm always pulling things that I haven't heard in a really long time or stuff that's a little more obscure because Going to clubs in the mid-90s in New York, there were ministry songs that were staples. You'd hear Thieves pretty often because that would get all the guys out on the dance floor and going nuts. Uh, Over the Shoulder, if you were lucky, would come out for the dance floor. And uh, Every Day is Halloween, of course, was a a pretty regular expected tune on a, a New York City dance floor in a goth club. But... I don't feel good about playing ministry out and and publicly saying, oh, yes, here's ministry uh," because of the conversation that we had regarding uh, St. Kieran, the bassist. Um, The fact that there's a a known rapist pedophile in your band and you don't speak up about it or do anything about it really turns me off. And that, that makes it really difficult for me to feel good about your band and, and to play that out for other people for a dance floor, home dance floor in these times or, or otherwise. So that's really where my, my breakup with ministry lies. Okay. For me, it's, it's probably about the time Paul Barker leaves the band, because by then, really, the, what made ministry its thing, I feel like Al is... He is an important part and an integral part of what Industrial was with Wax Tracks and with what Ministry was doing and probably for a time was also influencing and being influenced by Ogre and Skinny Puppy because, they, you know, we know they did stuff together. Yeah. Right? Um, but I think when Paul Barker leaves the band, because by that point, a lot of the artists that had been playing with him weren't anymore. And it, it's, it lost some dynamic. One of the songs I'm putting in for the mixtape that's going to accompany this episode is one of the last. It comes out of. It comes from the soundtrack of the movie AI. It's called "What About Us," and it's. It was written mostly by by the amalgamation of Barker and Al um, when they were sober, and it really shows that even later on, even when it was more of a metal thing, they had the core of what Ministry was. And when Paul Barker moves on, it really just becomes. A one one trick pony for me it, musically. Nothing really stupendous is happening or anything. It's just harder, faster, harder, faster. Like on the last sucker, which is the last album I end up purchasing, which yes is post Paul Barker, but I picked it up because Matt Finale from Caustic said it was pretty good. And you know, as far as metal ministry, if you're into that, you're probably gonna like it. So I picked it up. But it's got this cover of um, Riders on the Storm, oh, wow. which is a slow song and turns it into a speed metal track. So. Was it Riders on the Storm or Roadhouse Blues? I think it was Roadhouse Blues. I don't know. It's been a while since I put it on because it's just the whole album is just and it's just that gets boring after a while. Sure. Um, There are a lot of bands that do that style of metal better that I'd rather listen to if I'm going to spend the time listening to it. So, I mean, I think for me, I'm able to separate what's happening now with uh, Sin and Al because Al's an elderly man who's not going to waste the time doing something that might hurt him because he has no retirement plan. He shot it all up his arm, right? So I, I feel like they have the same moniker, but they're totally different bands from totally different eras doing totally different things. And that's kind of why I don't mind playing an older ministry track. But if you notice, I haven't played anything newer than Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste Myself, 
Like, yeah. I haven't even gotten into any of the 90s stuff. Everything I've played out has been from the 80s as well, when, when I feel they were at their creative peak. Because I did work my way backwards through their catalog. They were one of my favorite bands on the planet for a while there. And I still have a special place for those songs. And, you know, the band has had a very troubled past. Um, they're live guitarists of many, many, many years, going all the way back to, to Psalm 69 days. Mike Skakia, uh, I, uh, if I... Apologize if I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Collapsed on stage and then died later that night. Uh, yeah. Bill Reiflin's gone, right? Bill Reiflin's gone. Uh, Paul Barker's still around, and apparently he and Al are talking, but I don't think they're working together, and I don't believe there's any plan to. And I think there is an idea of ministry, and then there's what the reality is. And I'm going to again quote Matt Finale on something here because as he wrote uh, a song back when he was doing Paranoise and he just named songs anything, one of his song titles were All Your Heroes Are Dildos, which means if you really dig deep enough, they're all going to disappoint you. So what can you do, right? They're people. People disappoint people. Yeah, that's true. And I, I know when you've got songs that are near and dear to your heart and you kind of revisit them because th this is something that you've grown up with or it's something that comes from your past and it makes you a little nostalgic it's it's difficult to make that decision of like you know do i just say oh fuck this or do you take it on and i mean i i think it's very much something you have to take on a case-by-case -case basis uh as far as can you separate the art from the artist because it's undeniable that al jorgensen's a really talented guy but at the same time, it it's kind of a it's kind of a punch in the face because for someone who is so outwardly spoken about politics, like you go to the ministry website and there's all this messaging about make sure you're registered to vote and you should be voting and blah, blah, blah. And every time there's there was a Republican in the White House, how he'd come out with some more music and have plenty to say about that. It's like, OK, dude, you're really outspoken about all that stuff. Why aren't you speaking out on behalf of women? Especially when you've got a pedophile in your band who's going, you know, going after underage fans. Like, we once that becomes public knowledge, yes, women always warn each other. And it's like, oh, yes, as women, watch out for this guy because of this, this, and that. But why is the onus always on women? Like, dudes, you got to step up. Like, call out these other dickheads who can't get their shit together and have to be scumbags. That... That definitely pisses me off, and that that definitely make makes me uh, a little a little soured on things. There's really good songs, but I, in good faith, I don't really want to play them because of that. That really sours it for me. So that's that's where I leave that. I definitely acknowledge the importance of okay. Well, this is how this affected music within our subculture. So, yes, it's worth a mention. Yes, this has a place in, in music history. But as far as, like, do you want to support this? Because we vote with our dollars. And if you want to support people who are scumbags, giving them money just fuels that. So it, I think it's a decision people have to make for themselves as far as, like, yeah, would you go to the next ministry show when they come around? Do you feel good about supporting this? And, yeah, I know your answer is no. <laughs> I think we're both no's. I mean, for different reasons. Uh, you don't like their musical direction, and mine was, I've seen one of the best shows of my life was seeing them in a very small place that they were playing when they were kind of on a down dip at the early, in the early aughts. Uh, I saw them at Toad's Place in New Haven, which is a 700-person room that's built the wrong way, so it really only fits two to 300 in front of the stage, and that's about what was there. So why do I want to go see them in a stadium with an alleged pedophile in, in the band when I saw them? I th Paul, I think, was still in the band at that point. So, you know, that's 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 what I like. That's the band I liked. It was kind of on the tips of it. Um, and then it's it is what it is. Yeah. So I think that's a wrap. We do have a mixtape available to accompany this episode. You can find that at mixcloud.com slash it's midnight somewhere. If you like what you're hearing, spread the word, tell your friends. Be sure to like, subscribe and share and uh, check out our Facebook page. We can be contacted through Facebook as well as our email address, which is 
It's midnight somewhere podcast at gmail.com. It's midnight somewhere podcast is all one word. We also have stickers. If you go to morbidoutlook.com slash sticker, you can get yours and I'll drop them in the mailbox for you. All the proceeds from those help fund the show. We'd like to thank Robin Bright for our theme music, Marion Green for our visuals that you'll find on those great stickers, and our producer, Justin Minister. We'd also like to give a shout out to Auxiliary Magazine and to Dylan Maidley for writing up a little something about the podcast. Thanks for helping us get out there. Until next time. This podcast was almost called Better Than Your Playlist.